and we beheld his glory. Studies in John's Gospel, part 10. This morning, the cleansing of the temple and the beginning of the end for Jesus. It starts here. We've been 10 weeks. We're in chapter 2 of John's Gospel. I'm picking it up at verse 12. Follow along. After this, he went down to Capernaum, that's Jesus, with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews is at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. My dad, till the day he died, did not like this text and always explained to me that Jesus was really driving out the animals and the people just got in the way. And I remember the day sitting down and saying to him, that is not what the text says. And I didn't do that with my dad very often. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out. Who is that? Because, and with the sheep and oxen. <laughs> so you know he's not talking about the sheep and oxen in the first, he's talking about the people. Maybe it's that Jesus, that Jesus doesn't fit very well with our gentle Jesus, meek and mild, who put his hands and just blessed little children and said, love your enemies. He made a whip of cords, drove them all out of the temple, along with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Did you see that teacher in that university in the pro-life table, and she came and turned all the tables over? 16. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples are watching, okay? 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, quote, Zeal for your house will consume me. That's from the Psalms. So they see Jesus, and all of a sudden they go, oh, oh that's what that's about. It, it's a moment of kind of awakening for them. 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And that's just going to get him into trouble. 20, the Jews then said it has taken 46 years to build this temple. You will raise it up in three days? Then John writes, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Look at 22. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had spoken this about destroy this temple, three days I'll raise it up. When he was risen, oh, they put it together. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, it's not just to bore you. I want to show you a couple other texts where this, our text from John gets amplified and explained a little bit more. So try and follow along. I want to look at the synoptics talking about the same thing. So Mark 11, 
15 to 18. These are shorter. They came to Jerusalem, he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Okay, now look. John doesn't say this. 18, Mark 11. And the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. That's the first time you see those words. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Okay, that's Mark. Look at Matthew 26, 59, 61. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus. This is at the end of Jesus' life that they might put him to death. That's what they're looking for. They found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, here it is. This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. They have not forgotten this thing in the temple, right? Right at the end of Jesus' life. Know what he said? Look at Matthew 27, and I'm done. Now, here's the people around the cross. Here's how this saying was remembered. Matthew 27, 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then they sat down, kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. Look. And those who passed by, these are just the people, derided him. Nobody liked him. Nobody liked him derided him, wagging their heads and saying, look what they say, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Are you kidding me? They're still talking about this. You never get in trouble for telling people what you believe, nor did Jesus. You, you only get in trouble when you tell others that their beliefs are wrong. That's what we're seeing unfold in these powerful verses. My only point in linking these other texts with the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, linking those with our text from John's gospel is to show that this event of clearing the money changers and the animals and the words of Jesus upon doing so, this stayed with Jesus right up to the end of his life. And Mark makes it clear that it was at this point the very point of our text in John, that the leaders said, he has to be killed. He has to be killed. Notice John 2, 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So it's the annual celebration of the Jewish Passover, which made the temple an incredibly busy place in Jerusalem. Everyone had to come for sacrifice. Because people came from other places, currency had, that's the money changer, currency had to be changed because you had to buy the animal for sacrifice if you couldn't bring one all the way with you. So there's a whole process there. And they would charge more than they were supposed to charge. And Jesus says it's a, like a den of thieves, you see? It all, it all fits. 
By the way, this is something unique in John's account. John specifically mentions three Passovers. There's one in John 2, we're reading about it. There's one in John 6, where Jesus multiplies the loaves. And there's one in John 18 and 19, where Jesus goes into the most detail, describing himself as the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. I only mention that because it's primarily from that number, three Passovers, that we deduce the fact that Jesus had a three-year public ministry before he was crucified. We get that from John primarily. That's just on the side. Also, the text is significant because if you didn't have the knowledge of the rest of the New Testament, there's a drastic change in tone in this text. Everybody was crazy about seeing Jesus turn the water into wine. We studied that last week. You don't make any enemies there. We're brought face to face with a very angry Jesus. The whole mood is just kind of blazing with confrontation. We learn that not all the changes Jesus makes, think of the lordship of Jesus, not all the changes Jesus makes are as welcome as turning water into wine. His uh, disturbing, overturning presence, as John tells the story, it can change things very quickly, very radically. So Jesus welcomes and blesses sinners who are tired and weak and humble and repentant. But he comes down like thunder on the proud, self-reliant, the deniers, the deniers of objective redeeming truth. Maybe you need to meet this Jesus today. He will never be tamed by human sin or disinterest. He he didn't just come to say, love your enemies. Look through the New Testament. Look at Luke 12. I am come to fast, cast fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Wow. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Yeah. Yeah. You won't hear that one on all the religious morning talk shows. In these first two encounters with Jesus in John's gospel, the apostle wants us to see both sides of the world's encounter with the word made flesh. The disciples of John the Baptist, they were quick to respond in faith and follow Jesus He approached, he invited them, we saw that. And yet amazingly, the religious leaders, the scholars of the Jewish scriptures were immediately rejecting Jesus. And there's something to learn there. People with strongly held different views, people with strongly held different moral values will always have the hardest time submitting to Jesus. That was the case then, it's still the case. Now, that leads into point number one. Surprisingly, John moves this account of the temple cleansing from the end of Jesus' ministry in the synoptics to the very beginning in his gospel. 
The Passover of the Jews was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. And here's the thing. Matthew, Mark, Luke. They all place this account at the very end of Jesus' public ministry. Some people are really troubled by that. John puts it at the very beginning. Now, follow this. We know from John's account that he's aware of the chronology. He knows that. He's aware of the chronology of the temple and the times of its construction. We know that from verse 20. The Jews then said it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You'll raise it up in three days. So John can do the math. Specifically, there were 46 years from the beginning of the construction to the time of this conversation with Jesus. In other words, John knows exactly when this cleansing of the temple takes place. So the question remains, Why does John put it right at the beginning when he knows the chronology is different? Why does he do that? And the answer, I believe, ties in with John's opening prologue in that first chapter where he says, 1, 10, and 11, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people, his very own people. John puts it up front because he wants to show that in his very first encounter with Jesus. He came to his own people, his own father's house, the very temple in Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, those preparing the sacrifices that pointed to the Lamb of God. He came to those people, and those people wouldn't receive him. That's the point John wants me to get right at the beginning of his gospel. Point number two, Jesus says something that costs him his life. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these away, do not make, here's the thing, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, I want you to remember how I took the time at the beginning of this teaching to read the way everyone brought this event back at the end of Jesus' life, how it became just a foundational part of the plot against Jesus. Everyone, from the religious leaders to the legal authorities to the common people jeering at him around the cross, everybody talked about this event. But the words they all quote really aren't the ones that spark the hatred. It's the way Jesus claimed his own authority over the temple. That's what rattled their cage. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. He didn't say our father's house or your father's house. It's the way he separated himself from the rest of the religious heavyweights that just smacked of blasphemy wasn't the first time Jesus had done this. 
can all remember his words, even as a young boy, <laughs> picture it, his frantic parents trying to find him, retracing their steps, going back to the temple. Then when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he, that's Jesus, said to them, why are you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? This is the issue. So these religious leaders, the sellers making a good buck, what they want to know is, who, who does Jesus think he is? Coming in here, we've been doing this for years. We're, we're part of the system. Who, who does Jesus think he is making cords of leather, driving us out, throwing over the tables, scattering our money all over the place? Where does this outsider get the right to kick us out of our temple? It's not a bad question. It's not just the loss of money. That's part of the problem. But the real issue is, who? you can see them saying to Jesus, who made you God? That's why John places this miracle right up front in his account. What we're seeing played out is the reaction of the proud, the self-reliant, the self-righteous to the truth of John 1, 14, and the word was made flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus claimed his rightful superiority over all previously held religious systems. He still does. He still does. And most people still hate him for doing so. They love the Lord's Prayer. It's this stuff that gets Jesus into trouble. Three. What the temple was... Jesus now is. And so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Prove that you have the right to do this. And Jesus answered, destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days, are you? But he was speaking about the, there's the word again, the temple of his body. Of course, we know from John's explanation that Jesus wasn't talking about the physical building in Jerusalem. John tells us clearly Jesus was talking about his own physical body as this temple that would be destroyed on the cross and raised up in his resurrection. But the question still remains, why? Why did Jesus use that term temple to describe his body when they were all standing in Jerusalem right at the temple site during Passover yet? What would make Jesus pick this most volatile of all language? Why would he choose a term 
that was so prone to be misunderstood by this Jewish audience. And, and there's no getting around it. There's a massive self-assertion being made by Jesus in his exchange with these Jewish leaders. He's being deliberately dramatic, explosive in his word choice. This would get Jesus banned on social media today if he said what he said in the New Testament. They would never allow Jesus on social media. These leaders asked Jesus for a sign to validate his authority for driving them out of the temple. It's in 2.18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And the sign Jesus gives is a shocking one indeed. In his atoning death, that's the destroying part, and in his resurrected body, that's the raising part of Jesus' explanation. But what he's doing is he's telling all who would listen that what the temple used to be was now going to be permanently replaced and completed in his own body. This is a huge claim, church. He's saying the temple is not indispensable, and we know now it would be completely destroyed in about 70 AD. The temple was not indispensable. Jesus was now indispensable. That's what Jesus is saying. This is the temple. This is the one you need to know and care about. The crucified, risen Lord of all was, was the new, everywhere present, worthy of worship, sovereign temple of God for all who would come to the Father through the Son. That's where God's going to be found from now on, in Jesus. This will be explained in detail. We know the account, the woman of Samaria at the well in John 4. We'll get to that. But John puts this cleansing of the temple right up front in his gospel to introduce these massive claims of the word made flesh right out of the gate. You, you have to receive Jesus as he introduces himself, John is saying. Jesus doesn't adjust. We adjust. And the permanent, eternally relevant message of this text is the answer to the most important question anyone in this room will ever ask. If you're going to meet God Almighty for yourself, where will you find him now? Where will you find him now? Answer? You'll have to come to Jesus Christ the new and living way we read about it. This is the place where God makes himself available to all who will repentantly come. Four, the finished work of Christ and the way the first disciples came to understand the scriptures. John 2, 16 and 17, and then 20 to 22. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. 20, 22. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. You will raise it up in three days. 
but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now, when therefore he was raised from the dead, so this is later on. John writes this gospel and he thinks back. When he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus, the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. John is the only apostle who records this exchange in such detail. And he has a wonderful purpose in mind. John begins his account with this exchange at the cleansing of the temple because he wants to place, just as he opened his gospel with the prologue in chapter 1, he wants to place the uniqueness of Christ as the promised Messiah. This is why this is why he links up Jesus' actions in the temple with the prophetic words from Psalm 69.9. The zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So the disciples, they came to believe. They didn't just see a man consumed with zeal for the Father's house. What they came to see was the fulfillment of the promised Messiah. There's just another insight from these prophetic words from the psalmist. They're frequently misunderstood. The psalmist doesn't mean that Jesus was just consumed by his own anger as though it was his own temper that was consuming him. No. The last part of 69.9 explains in what sense Christ's zeal consumed him. For the zeal of your house has consumed me, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. In other words, his zeal for his father's house would consume him, ultimately destroy his physical body in the sense that in the process of defending his father's honor, he would find all the others in the father's house turning against him. The Messiah's zeal for the father's house and glory will cost him his life, and I showed you how that worked out. And the apostle John wants all of his readers to know right up front that this wasn't something spinning out of control. This was all in the father's plan there would be unavoidable reproach for Jesus right out of the gate. There still is. And here's the thing. There would be reproach from the surrounding culture on those who decided to seriously follow Jesus. There's something huge in this text. The disciples see it. The disciples, for the very first time in John's account, the disciples begin to see their own scriptures differently. That's what's happening here. You're witnessing it. They begin, just begin, to see that not only is the temple finding its fulfillment in the risen body of Christ, that he would now become the permanent dwelling place of God for mankind, but they also begin to see that their own Jewish scriptures also find their fulfillment in the person of Christ as well. The new covenant is replacing the old right before our eyes. 
they come to see the key to interpreting all their old scriptures. Notice the way John places the words of Jesus and the recorded scriptures side by side in the disciples' faith. And they believe the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Same. Same authority. Five. Here's how I'd like to wrap this up. Sometimes we must wait to fully understand God's great works. It's in 20 and 22. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. John wants us to take note of this gap between what Jesus revealed and said, okay, and when the disciples came to get it. There's a time break there. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered. Oh, that's what that was about. It's frequently such. Disciples must listen carefully to Jesus Christ. And we have his words. You have them too, immediately, faithfully recorded in the scriptures, all the things we need to know. And that faith in the promises of God, the words of Christ, that faith is sometimes rewarded immediately, and sometimes it's rewarded eventually, as with the disciples. It's after Jesus rose from the dead, they saw Oh, and they believed what Jesus said. But that's long later. Faith is sometimes rewarded immediately and sometimes it's rewarded eventually. The disciples simply listened and treasured what Jesus said. Please notice this, because I want to get to where we live. They seemed not benefited by what Jesus revealed at that moment. But they didn't cast aside his words. They, they would understand them when Jesus rose from the dead. But they stayed with it. And we learn, all of us, that listening to God must always be a, a patient listening. You always have to give God the benefit of the doubt. His promises and his truth don't wear out or cool off with the passing of time if we'll just keep them alive in our hearts and minds. Maybe that's where you are today. All you've got is a promise and unchanged circumstances. All you've got is the word, but you're still in the dark. 
Learn this life principle, church. It's in this text. Contrary circumstances don't cancel out Christ's words. Contrary circumstances don't cancel out Christ's words. Would you say that with me? Contrary circumstances don't cancel out Christ's words. Think of these disciples, okay? They got this promise. Tear down this body and I will raise it up in three days. And they, did, they couldn't really believe it. It says they believed it when he rose from the dead. Imagine the disciples hearing these words from Jesus, okay? Pretty strong words. And then imagine as they watch, the enemies of Christ win every battle. They watch Jesus get captured. They sit as much as they dare and watch the phony trial. They see the guilty verdict. They sit and watch Jesus being beaten. They sit and count the lashes on his back. They all desert him around the cross. That's how sure they were that he lost and they were next, right? Then the resurrection. I love it. And the disciples, oh, oh, there it is. That's it. That's what we were holding on to. And it all made sense. Just wait, church. Wait in faith. Christ's words will always ring true in the end. He will never, ever be defeated. You will see the power of Jesus in every patiently held promise. The life generating freedom, you're going to see it in every command that you just persist in. The eternal life in every revealed word. If you cling in hope for that soon coming day when everything that we've waited for in faith, it can be very frustrating at times. It's one day going to be rock solid, physical, visible sight. And you're going to say, I'm so glad I kept trusting. I'm so glad I kept trusting. Everyone said, 